Well, again, saints, we are back in Christology, and uh, we are now looking at another aspect of the priestly work or office of Christ, that when you think about the priestly office of Christ, this is probably what you think of, and it's going to be Jesus Christ's um, intercessory work on our behalf. So if you were to read uh, various systematic theologies or any textbook on the priesthood or the office of priesthood of Christ, um, what's going to dominate the page is it's going to be how Jesus Christ makes intercession for us. How Christ makes intercession for us. And the, this evening, I want to look at Christ's intercession um, in a way that... Um, um, theologians uh, typically do, uh, but also in another way that theologians don't, um, and bring out some of the things that uh, the intercession of Christ does for us, uh, and how the intercession of Christ is as equally as important as his living, as his dying, and as his rising. Uh, you see, just because um, the intercession or the intercessory work of Jesus Christ um, is something that he's doing uh, um, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, uh, doesn't make that work any less than his living and his dying and his rising. Uh, but as Thomas Aquinas says, that all of what Christ does for us is for our salvation. So we must view all of the acts and the works of Christ in that view, that all of what Christ does for us is for our salvation and to bring our salvation to completion. Let's begin this lesson with this question. For the past 2,000 years, what has Jesus Christ been doing? For the past 2,000 years, what has Jesus Christ been doing? In other words, when our Lord ascended to the right hand of the Father, was his work complete? When Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, so think of after the resurrection, 40 days, then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, did his work um, come to a completion? Now, do not throw tomatoes and stones at me, and don't call me a heretic when I say this, but it's a yes and no answer. A yes and no answer. Now, you might think, how can I possibly say that the work of Christ in some way, shape, or form is not complete? When we, when we think of the work of Christ, we think of, a, of Christ's work as uh, final, as complete, as nothing we can add to it, as sufficient, uh, efficient, all these things. So how in, how in the world is Christ's work not complete? And theologians have called this the finished yet ongoing work of Jesus Christ. The finished yet ongoing work of Jesus Christ. Now, I am no way, shape, or form is saying that there's still work that needs to be done for men to be saved. Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life for us, has died a death that fully satisfied the justice of God. He rose for our justification. But when we talk about the persons whom Christ died for. Are there still persons that have yet to be redeemed? We'll have to say yes. 
Are there persons that have yet fully experienced the fullness of salvation? Well, that would be yes, because us would be one of them. We have yet to be perfected. We have yet to have our glorified bodies. So we can say, with regard to bringing people to salvation, the the people who are not saved, and bringing the people who are saved to final completion, that is to bring them with Christ, Christ's work is still ongoing. And that is, he's still saving people. Not by living more and dying more and rising more, um, but yet he has yet to apply his perfect work to people's. Christ bringing us to himself is the ongoing work of Christ, simply put. Christ bringing us to himself is the ongoing work of Christ. And saints, what this ongoing work consists of is his high priestly intercession for us. When we talk about the high priestly intercession of Christ, it's his ongoing work. This is what Jesus Christ is doing now. This is what Christ is doing now. So if you ever wondered... Is Christ now some stoic who's just up in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, basking in all of his glory? Well, yes, he's doing that, but he's not a stoic. But rather, he is bringing people to salvation. Now, what does it mean to make intercession? Well, simply put, it means to pray. It means to pray. Simply, uh, specifically, it means to pray on the behalf of, uh, on the behalf of or for others. So pray on the behalf of or for others. This is important to to understand. So we can say that right now Jesus Christ is praying for us. Now that's a that's a amazing point, is it not? That right now currently as I am speaking as you are sitting, Christ is praying for us. A couple of verses that bring this to light Hebrews 7:25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And lastly, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, in order for us to better understand positively what the intercessory work of Christ is, I want us to offer, I want to offer three ways, um, in which we can wrongly understand the intercession of Christ. How can we wrongly inter- understand the intercession of Christ? So, what are some wrong ways to think about it? Well, one way you might think of the, of Christ's intercession, or his work of intercession, is by making Jesus into your lawyer against an angry God the Father. Again, one wrong way to think about Christ's intercession is to make Christ your lawyer, against an angry God who is the Father. Some Christians believe that every time you sin, God the Father gets angry at you again. But since Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, He reminds the Father, saying something like, Now remember, I died for this one. Don't get angry with him or her. The problem with this view is it posits some internal conflict within the triune persons. Or within God over sin, as if it is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, 
who gives sin a pass because he died for sin, and the father who, when one sins, it gets angry at sin. You have a division between the two persons over the nature of sin. And people like to use Christ's propitiatory sacrifice as sort of a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. And Christ is saying, you already punished this. Uh, you don't need to punish it again. Another wrong view, to, another wrong way to view Christ's intercession is Jesus is your defense attorney who is ever defending you against the Father who's ever waiting to judge you. Again, Jesus is your defense attorney who is ever defending you against the Father who's ever wanting to judge you. The problem with this understanding um, is it posits a division within the will of the triune God. One nature, one will. Um, this is this is the same problem that people have when they think that the Father sent His Son because He hates the world, and 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 He poured out His anger and wrath towards the Son, and the Son absorbs it rather out of love. The Father sends His Son. And out of love, the son laid down his life for the love of his own justice. Now, in that, when we're saying uh, the son lays down his life for the, or out of the love for his father's justice, in that, embedded in that, is also a hatred for sin. So I am no way, shape, or form saying that uh, the triune persons love sin. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, they, 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 they despise sin, um, if we can say it that way. And one last way people wrongly view the intercession of Christ is by thinking Jesus Christ is on bended knees before the Father pleading on our behalf. This is probably the common way. This might be the way you think of the intercession of Christ. That Jesus Christ right now, or when we think of, okay, Christ is praying for us. He's pleading on our behalf. You might think that he's on bended knees with hands raised up. You might think that. Now, although you will hear the language from many good theologians that Jesus pleads, that language of pleading on our behalf before the Father, we aren't ever to think that Jesus is ever on his knees. And we aren't ever to think that Jesus is raising up his hands. And we aren't ever to think that Jesus is crying out and wailing before the Father. Um, similar to how many of us do. Francis Turretin says, I'm going to quote a lot of dead theologians tonight, so excuse me, but Francis Turretin says, the circumstances of prayer are not to be considered as belonging to it, as if he knelt after the manner of supplicants, supplicant, or of people, raised his hands or eyes to heaven and prostrated himself before God, which would be inconsistent with the glory he obtained by his sitting down at the right hand of God. So what do we mean when we say, Christ is praying for us. He's making intercession for us. If it's not Christ on hands and knees, knees and hands laid up, raised up, uh, crying out, what do we mean? Well, how much the One must not think that Christ falls upon his knees there and prays with strong cries and tears. So what do we mean then? His intercession, however, consists in his appearance. In the sanctuary before the countenance of his father with his blood. It consists of, it consists in the demonstration of the efficacy of his suffering and death. 
What you'll hear amongst the Reformed tradition is that Christ's prayers, his intercessory prayer, is not vocal, but it's by appearance. Christ's intercession is not him on hands and knees, but it's him before the Father. His appearance before the Father. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 12 say this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things having come, having come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle made without hands. That is, he's entering into heaven. That is, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. It is Christ who appears before the Father and his appearance represents his perfect work. His appearance represents his perfect active and passive obedience. John Calvin, he says, We must not measure this intercession by our carnal judgment. For we must not suppose that he humbly um, is before the Father with bended knees and expanded hands. But as he appears continually as the one who died and rose again, and as his death and resurrection stand in the place of eternal intercession and have the efficacy of a powerful prayer for reconciling and rendering the Father to us. What Calvin is saying is Christ's appearance before the Father is more powerful than our prayers. Christ's appearance without words is more powerful than us praying to the Father For men to be saved. That's what Calvin is saying. As the father beholds the incarnate son, he beholds the glory of his son and he beholds the God man who perfectly lived, who perfectly died and perfectly rose. And all those who are united to him, he sees them in him. Now, that is the nature of Christ's intercession. So if we say, what is the nature of Christ's intercession? Is not that he is on bended knees, but rather it's he's appearing before the Father. That's how he prays for us. <clears throat> now let's ask, why is it necessary for Christ to intercede for us? Why is it necessary? One theologian said, have you ever thought of this, that the prayers of Christ save you? That's a, that's a really interesting way to think about all that what Christ does for us, including his prayers. We are saved by the prayers of Christ. Francis Churton explains, the institution of God who wished two parts to be in the priesthood, satisfaction and intercession. Just as under the Old Testament, the high priest was bound to do two things in virtue of his office. First, to offer a victim upon the altar of whole burnt offerings. Second, to carry the blood of the victim, offered victim into the holy place and to burn incense, that is intercession, Uh, upon the altar of incense. So here, historically, the priests were to offer the sacrifice, but also to make intercession. That's what Turretin is saying. That's what a priest does. That's what the priest in the Old Covenant or Testament did. Now for a more theological reasoning. Turretin. And this might ruffle some feathers. It was not sufficient to obtain salvation once, unless it could be perpetually preserved and applied. Christ obtained the former by his satisfaction, but the latter he should procure by his intercession. By the former he obtained salvation, by the latter he preserves it. 
By the former, he purchased the right to live and reconciles us to God. By the latter, he actually omits us to participation of life and continual, keep, continually keeps us uh, when once established in the grace of God. This is very important for all of us to understand. Abraco says something similar. For men to be saved, it was not sufficient that by his sufferings, death, and holiness, he merited salvation. That's a really problematic statement if you leave it there. But it, it was also necessary that by the means of his intercession, he would apply salvation and make them actual partakers of it. This was typified in the Old Testament by the high priest who was not finished after offering the sacrifice, but had to enter the Holy of Holies with blood in order to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and burn incense. What these men are saying is this, that there is a difference between the finished work of Christ or Christ finishing his work and applying that finished work. There is a difference between Christ's finished work and him applying, putting to use that finished work. If all that Christ did was live, die, oh no, if all that Christ did was live, die, and rise for us, without also applying that work to us, then he died in vain. And he simply made salvation a possibility. We are dead in our sins. Again, if all that Christ did was live, die, and rise without applying his salvation or applying this work to us, he would have only made salvation possible. You see, saints, when Christ died on the cross over 2,000 years ago, you were not saved yet. That's essentially what I'm saying. When Christ was living, you weren't saved yet. And when Christ rose, you weren't saved yet. The elect and the non-elect, the elect and the reprobate, are still under equally divine judgment. You are still a child of wrath, even though you are elect. We can even go a step further. That you weren't united to Jesus Christ when he lived, died, and rose. He was not, in a legal sense, your federal head. Now, how can I say all this? Because what is the use of believing upon the Lord then? If you were saved over 2,000 years ago by his life, death, and resurrection. It's not until you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ that you are legally united to Jesus Christ and you go from being under Adam's federal headship to now Christ's federal headship. That's what I'm saying. If you don't believe me, consider uh, our confession, chapter 11, paragraph 4. God did from all eternity decree, decree to justify all the elect. So, God has decreed to justify certain persons. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit does in time do actually apply Christ unto them. Christ does die for you. But until you are given the Holy Spirit to believe, that death means nothing to you in terms of you personally um, being justified. Joe Beakey says this, the application of justification is the direct result not of Christ's death, 
nor his resurrection. So what Jobiki is saying is justification, that act by which the Father gives to you, imputes to you Christ's perfect righteousness, his life, death, and resurrection, and legally declares you innocent before him. That declaration is not a result of Christ living and dying, but rather, he says, of his intercession. Note that uh, Jobiki does not mean to belittle the cross and his work. Rather, he means to show how Jesus Christ applies his fully sufficient work to the hearts of the elect throughout time. In other words, how does Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection get to you? How does something over 2,000 years ago get to you? The answer is Christ's intercession. It's his intercession. Where Jesus Christ, from the right hand of the Father, applies the benefits of his life and death to the church by the Spirit. And Jesus continues to plead the perfect righteousness of his blood as our advocate. So again, how are we saved? Well, we are saved by Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. How does Christ apply that salvation, that perfect life? Through his intercession. That's what we mean. Now, what does Christ's intercession consist of? Um, As we wind down. What are the acts of Christ's intercession? Tiritan is going to give us three reasons, or three ways, or three acts. Number one, the appearing of Christ for us by which he places himself before God the Father as the only satisfier for our sins, representing the blood once shed, i.e. the merit of his death, and asking that at the sight of it he would pardon our sins and bestow upon us all blessings necessary to salvation until he has conducted us into possession of full felicity. We've already covered this, but here we see that the first act of Christ's intercession is to present himself before the Father so that our sins would be forgiven and the fullness of salvation may be bestowed upon us. But notice, saints, that our Lord's appearance before the Father is the cause, is the source of the blessings the Father, by His Spirit, showers upon us. Again, the Lord's, our Lord's appearance before the Father is the root cause source of the blessings, all of these blessings that the Father gives to us by the Spirit. It is only by our Lord's appearance before the Father that the salvation blessings of Ephesians 1 come to us. Remember in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Christ has entered into the very heavenly tabernacle on our behalf. In Christ. And what are these blessings? Christ gives to us, or the Father gives to us through Christ by His Spirit in verse 4. Complete perfection, it says in Ephesians 1, verse 4, that we may be holy and blameless before him. In verse 5, is adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ himself. In verse 7, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our wrongdoings according to the riches of his grace. In verse 11, we have an inheritance. And in verse 13, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That these blessings that we read in Ephesians chapter 1 come to us through the intercession of Jesus and applied by the Spirit. The second act of Christ's intercession is for our defense. 
Turton says, our defense and protection against the thunderbolts of the law and the accusations of Satan, pleading our cause at the tribunal of God. This is wonderful news, is it not, saints? Embedded in Christ's prayers for us, embedded in his intercession, is us to be protected from the devil. Is us to be protected from the evil one. And this is a prayer that Christ prayed on earth, is it not? Jesus says in John 17, 15, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but keep them away from the evil one. You see, what Christ does in his intercession, he knows all too well that our greatest enemy in this life, along with our flesh and our sin, is the devil. You know, saints, we are not materialists. We do believe in the, in the devil. Uh, we do believe in the supernatural. As was said this morning, um, that uh, we are continuationists in the sense of we do believe that miracles are still going on today, i.e., all of us are saved. And we have to believe that there is still an unseen enemy that roams around like a roaring lion, uh, influencing others in order that the righteous may fall. Christ here is praying that our conscience would be protected from the fiery darts of the devil and of our own flesh. And lastly, the third act of Christ's intercession is offering our persons to God. Offering our persons to God. Turretin, the offering of our persons and the sanctification of our prayers and our entire worship in so much as it, as he presents all of our prayers to God as spiritual sacrifices, perfumed with the most fragrant odor of his own sacrifice, so that in and through him they may be pleasing and acceptable to God. This is wonderful. There are many Christians who misunderstand Christ's work of intercession by believing that only Christ's work can be pleasing to God, rather than our works through the priestly intercession of Christ is pleasing to God. In other words, many believe that there is nothing in no way, shape, or form that we can do in this life to please God. I'm talking about Christians, not non-Christians, Christians here. That there is nothing that a Christian can do in no way, shape, or form that can please God because anything that we do is tainted by sin. Friends, this type of thinking is not what Scripture says, nor our Reformed tradition, and it misunderstands the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. Consider what our confession says in chapter 16, verse 6, or paragraph 6. Yet, withstand, yet notwithstanding, the persons of believers, so we're talking about believers here, being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life holy and unblameable and reprovable in God's sight, but that he, God, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. What our confession is saying is, Jesus Christ has provided through his priestly sacrifice and continual intercession an altar he is the altar upon which we can truly render worship that is due to God. And God looks at that worship and is pleased with that worship. Can we do anything pleasing in the sight of God? Yes. Yes. Believers, 
Yes, believer, you can do things. You can do good works that are pleasing to God. Consider with me two verses that speak to this. First Peter 2, 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here, Peter says that by the Spirit and through Christ, our good works, our prayers, our worship are acceptable to God. Revelation 3, uh, verses, uh, 8, verses 3 and 4. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense ascended from the angel's hand with the prayers of the saints before God. This is a beautiful passage. Here, Jesus is likened to an angel who enters into the heavenly tabernacle before the Father to present our sacrifices as a pleasing aroma. I mean, just think of that. <laughs> our worship, our prayers, our good works, our persons. In the hand of Jesus, presented to the Father. In other words, Christ as our high priest presents for the saints through the fragrance and the perfumes of his mediation, our prayers and sacrifices, and makes them acceptable to God. John Gill says, by virtue of Christ's mediation, the imperfections of the prayers of the... This is beautiful. Let me stop and say that first. John Gill says, by virtue of Christ's mediation, the, the imperfections and the prayers of the saints are covered. And how are they it perfumed and acceptable to God. In other words, through Christ's intercession, Christ takes our good works, and even if they are imperfect, but they are done with a sincere heart, and he perfumes them. He puts them in his hand. And now they are a sweet aroma to the Father. And he presents them to the Father. And the Father says, I accept that. I accept that. This is Christ's intercession that he presents all of who we are, but also all of what we do in this life to the Father. And it's a pleasing aroma to the Father. Saints, in light of all this information, how do we live in light of this? Well, just one quick, simple application. When you are feeling the fiery darts of Satan, When you are feeling the weight of the world coming down and closing down or closing in on you. um, When you feel like you are not making much progress in this Christian life. The great words that Jesus says to Peter is what Jesus says to all of you. In Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you men like wheat. But what, what are the encouraging words? But I have prayed for you. Christ is praying for us. And saints, the prayers that Christ offers are prayers that the Father loves to answer. So again, when you feel the fiery darts of Satan, remember, Christ says, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You can be a witness um, to Christ. Let's pray.